All right, we'll get back into chapter 4. Um, I'm going to try and go as fast as I can through it. Um, remember that the point here is uh, just to give us context with where we're at. Man, there's stuff. Just to give us context, we've already gone through the, the first three chapters. The first chapter 1 is the vision of Christ. John's first vision of Christ among the lampstands, which sets the tone and the uh, overall trajectory for the book itself, which is to assure and strengthen the churches through the, uh, through the things that must take place. And the word must that we pick up in chapter 4 is very key. Um, we'll talk about that when we get to it. Then we went through the message to each of the seven churches, seven being the number of fullness and wholeness, meaning the, the, the whole church. Um, the church goes through various issues during it, the timeline of the church age, compromise, loss of love, overt sin, death, uh, being dead, um, uh, being complacent, all of uh, being under persecution or being a strong church. So there are different seasons for the church. And in fact, most churches will have a collection of all of those components to it. But in every case, no matter what the situation, Jesus was merciful and kind. And in fact, Lord, in order to, uh, to assure, encourage, strengthen, and cause to persevere. Now, this is one of the tenets of Reformed theology. One of the things that I particularly um, hold dear is the idea of the preservation of the perseverance of the saints, depending on how you hold that, that whatever Jesus, whatever God has ordained from the foundations of the earth as his own, he will sustain no matter what. And that should be a great comfort to all of us, those he calls he also will glorify. That is the promise in Romans called the golden chain. <laughs> Believe it or not. Romans 8. So those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. So there is a, there's a non-negotiable in there. So the idea among the churches is to strengthen, encourage, and bring to a place of preservation or perseverance. And he does that with each one of us as we neg negotiate the trying times, that the pictures are going to be. The, the third chapter in, uh, ends with the statement, he who has an ear to hear what the churches say, uh, he, who he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, is very key. It's a parabolic statement. How many of you know what parabolic means? It's not a math term. Well, it is, but there are two different, I uh, the engineer walks in. Hi, Doug. <laughs> Why? Um, oh, well, that's true. Parabolic in, in, our, in our terms uh, within biblical context are parables. So it is a parable-like statement, which says, I've spoken to you plainly, and I'm about to show you the things which must, must happen pictorially. Okay, and the first thing that John sees after this is what? Chapter 4, what does he see? Come on, how many of you have read the... 
What does John see the very first thing? There are two chapters. He sees the door. But what does that door bring him into? The spiritual realm. Now, yes, so he gets to see the throne of God. And that's symbolic. Remember last week we said that we asked the question, does Jesus actually, does God actually sit on a piece of furniture? Some say yes, some say no. I say no. It is a spiritual picture of the sovereignty of God. It is actually a visual representation of his, uh, of, uh, uh, what's the word, one of his attributes. And that's the point that John is being shown, that God is in sovereign control, that he oversees the affairs of men, that all things, and as we'll see in this vision, even the evil that you see in the world is under his control and inexorably moving toward the fulfillment of his purposes. Okay? And so this is what, so before, and this is key, before John is shown the warfare between the powers, uh, the principalities of darkness and, and the throne of God, before he's shown that war, he is given a revelation of who God is. Okay, and that's very key because God wants to assure, Jesus wants to assure John that this is all under control. I'm about to show you some horrific things. And the image of the beast was such that it, it, it actually caused John to tremble. It's indescribable, the, uh, the hideousness of this beast. So before John is shown these things, John is shown the majesty and the splendor and the grandeur of he who controls all things. And that's very important, all right, because God is establishing a foundation. I will show you things, but do not fear, okay? All right, so um, I'm going to read you a, uh, an introduction. I've, I have a book called um, All Things New, Revelation as a Canonical Capstone. Um, I would recommend the book. I know that the, the title is one that's kind of hard to understand, but the idea is, is that Revelation is the capstone to everything the Bible speaks of, and it's a biblical theological book that traces very cool things throughout Revelation and, and shows them back through Scripture and how Revelation shows the fulfillment of those things. His name is Brian J. Tabb. And he wrote this, the apocalypse depicts the deliverance of God's people and the de demise of his enemies in terms of a new exodus. And this is very important because as we get into the idea of the plagues and the deliverance uh, and Pharaoh, there's mention of Egypt in Revelation. All of this stuff is all of what went on in the exodus while the children of Israel were under the rule of Pharaoh is now being consummated in much the same way in Revelation. The plagues, uh, the, the plagues and the, uh, the bowls of wrath are direct, connect, directly connected back to the seven plagues of Egypt. Directly. Okay, so what you saw by, by God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt is in fact a foreshadowing of what will happen in these last days and what is happening in these last days, okay? 
So it is a new exodus that we're looking at. Jesus the Lamb saves sinners, stands triumphant over death, and sits on his divine throne to enact God's righteous judgment on a rebellious world. The divine plagues against the ungodly uh, against the ungodly redemption of his people follow the script of the Exodus and fulfill Old Testament longings for the day when God would again bear his holy arm to dry up the sea. The sea is a very, very important picture in Revelation. Okay? Very important picture. The the in 19 you'll see when when the merchants cry out, they are depicted as what? Seafarers. Captains of ships. Because the commerce of the the beast by which they acquire their wealth is shown to be the sea. And the sea is out of which all the chaos and everything anti-God comes. That's why in Revelation 21 it says, and there will be no more sea. That is the first thing is said in Revelation chapter 21. There's no more chaos. There's no more home of Leviathan. That's what that statement means, okay? Uh, to dry up the sea, pierce the dragon, and lead his people to experience everlasting joy. So we are looking at a new exodus, and it's uh, important to keep that in mind. Let's go back to chapter 4, verse 1, and I'm just give us quick brief overview of what we covered last week. Uh, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and a voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. After this I looked, as we spoke of, this does not mean that the events depict a chronological order in occurrence in the history of the church. A lot of dispensationalists use that phrase after this to show a chronological timeline. After this means that this is going to start happening. And then after this, meaning that after I saw the visions and everything that goes on there, then I saw this, which is in sequential order. That's not what he's saying. He's saying basically what John is saying is, is that I first saw this vision and now I saw this vision. I know it's a subtle twist, but understand that we grew up understanding and most of us in American eschatology understood that this is a linear timeline. And we read Revelation like we do the Gospels as a picture of something that's moving forward. And John is not saying that. He's saying these are overlapping visions that I saw first, second, and third. But they're not in sequential order. They actually overlap. Okay? So... Um, the phrase indicates this, uh, the sequential order in which John saw the visions, but not the historical order of the events they depict. What must take place after this? Now, this is an important, and I told you we would spend some, a moment on this. What must take place? Why is the word must here an important word? What must take place? Okay. Has to come. Okay, again, let me let me let me express something. This is a very good point, and I'm not I'm gonna pick on you a minute, Doug, so don't don't I know you're thick skin. 
What he just said is a really good depiction of how our mind immediately goes to uh, chronological order. What must take place so that something after this can happen later? That's not what this word means. And again, what I'm trying to do is get us to no longer think in terms of a linear experience when we read Revelation, but to look at it as a recapitulation, which is an overlapping of bowls, um, um, seals, trumpets, and wrath that actually overlap and actually coordinate and intensify as we move closer and closer. They're not sequential. The bowls don't have the trumpets don't happen after the seals. The first four seals are very clearly a designation of that. And I looked and behold, a white horse, and the rider on it was uh, brought. What was it? War? I'm trying to remember. Conquest or whatever. We've seen that going on throughout the church age. The red horse, death. Uh, the red horse was famine. We've seen that going on through the church age. As a matter of fact, that imagery is where in Scripture? Where is that exact imagery about the horses being loosed on the earth? Zechariah. So even at the time of Zechariah, this truth, this was a foreshadowing of the truth of what God would re release through Jesus Christ because of what he has accomplished on the cross. All right, the word must is important to the vision of John uh, that John is being shown for these reasons. The current, um, what's being shown is intended to reveal that God is sovereign and in control of all creation, that all creation, including the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon are under the authority and rule of he who sits on the throne, and they all move inexorably toward the accomplishment of his purposes, right? So we've already established that, right? Let me ask you guys a question, and I, I don't think we ask ourselves it very often. Does God react to what Satan is doing in the earth today? Did God react to man's fall in the garden? Was it like, oh my, look what they did. Was God surprised that the serpent was in the garden? Okay. So everything is under the control of God, right? So accordingly, because of that sovereign control and its ultimate purpose, the things that are being revealed to John are of necessity and will occur because they must in the plan of God. They are unchangeable. This should give you guys great hope. This singular word right here, must, is now to be carried throughout the entire scripture, uh, the entire book of Revelation. Everything that you read is a must occurrence. It's a must. And when you get to the end, it must be that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. It must be that all things will be made new. It must be that you will be a part of the bride of Christ. It must be that there will be no sin, no death, no crime, no, nothing, no sea. It must be. So this word is very, very important for our encouragement. Very important. So I will show you the things that must be, says God. That's so key. All right? This is also a direct phrase back to Daniel 2.28 in which Daniel prophesies the latter day coming of the kingdom of God. The use here in John reveals that what Daniel see, saw is now happening because of Jesus Christ.
Interestingly enough, when, jo- when Daniel saw it, he was shown things and he was told to seal these things up, right? Do not speak of these things. What, is the, what's, what happens in the very next chapter with Jesus who takes what out of the Father's hands? The scroll, and he opens it. So what Daniel saw as sealed, Jesus opens and reveals. So this is a very cool tie, all right? These words then do not refer to the distant future or to the yet-to-come time of great tribulation, but instead to events unfolding right now and while John was writing, okay? All right, the entire phrase, and I will show you what must take place after this, is a reference to all the things included from chapter 4 to the end of the book and intend to indicate that the visions about to unfold concern events throughout the church age. We just said that. All right, and the voice I heard speaking was that of the trumpet. That's the same voice that John heard in chapter 1. The very same voice. It's the voice of Christ. All right, and, and in chapter 5, it is the only reference to Jesus. But as we said, if we go back to it, chapter 4 and 5 is a two-fold vision, 4 through 5. What's the first What's the first? Chapter intending to, to reveal to us. God of creation, sovereign over all. And God is shown in his Trinitarian form. Okay? One, in one I don't want to even say person, a, a being that's on, the, that's on the throne that John doesn't even attempt to describe, by the way. And in front of the throne are seven lamps which represent what the the holy spirit okay the holy spirit and the holy spirit proceeds in scripture come on theologians the holy spirit proceeds from the father and the son corporately okay all right That's the filioque controversy, if any of you guys are interested. That's the debate between the Eastern Orthodox and Western Christianity about whether the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father or from both the Father and the Son. We are of the latter. Because Jesus said, when I ascend to my Father, I will send the Comforter. Right? So, okay. So that's a picture of what we understand. The, the, the Spirit of God resides before the throne as proceeding from the Father and the Son. It is the Spirit of God. So what you see is a visual depiction of the triune God. A visual depiction of the triune God. And we're going to draw stuff here in a minute. I'm going to get through all all of this because I'm going to get to the cool stuff in a minute. But anyway, chapter 4 is the verse of God, the Creator, sovereign over all things. Chapter 5 is the Lord of Redemption, Jesus Christ. And so... God in his triune creativity is shown in five. The lamb who redeems is sh- uh, in four. And the lamb who redeems, the one who takes the scroll, the one who is also seen in the midst of the throne, ta- takes the scroll because he is seen as having been crucified, which goes back to Exodus as the Paschal lamb. He opens the scroll because he is the only one worthy because of what he's done. Okay, to reveal the eternal plan of salvation. Okay, so it's a it's a it's a progressive. It's a I hate the chapter divisions. 
because it's one vision. John sees God and then he sees in the midst of God the incarnate Son. That's, that's an amazing picture. That's an amazing picture. All right. Come up here in this verse, John is ushered into the presence of God in the heavenly courts. It is in this place that God chooses to reveal himself. Uh, all um, JB, uh, let me see if I distinct possible form in time, at least linear. Okay, all of the visions from Revelation 6, 1 to 22, 5 actually flow out of this vision. And they are all visions that come out of the sealed scroll that's opened in 5.1. The fact of this uh, leads, uh, lends itself to the amillennial recapitulation hermeneutic in which all the visions have a mixture of past, present, and future elements. All right? At once I was in the throne. Oh, am I going too fast? Sorry. I'm just trying to recap. Okay? flesh this out so we get a running start at the, what G John actually saw. Let me tell you something really quick. You will notice that a lot of what John sees is actually already written of by several other prophets of the Old Testament. How many of you can say who they were? Get, shoot at me. Who, who's, who all? Daniel 7, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1 and 10. There was one other, and I can't remember his name, is in Kings. And he saw the Lord and he saw the retinue or the, or the courts of heaven spread out in a linear form side by side. Now, if you read all of those together, you'll find that there's a whole lot of variations in them. Why? In like, for example, Ezekiel saw the glassy sea actually over the top of the heads of the throne and the seraphim. But in John's vision, he saw it before the throne on the ground. Why? Why did the seraphim in one vision have six wings and the cherubim in another have four? Because it's a picture of what is true. And in each picture, God is intending to show something specific about himself. In Ezekiel, you see wheels within wheels that eyes all about, right? Why? Because the point is to assure the, Isra the Israelite nation that the covenant God, when they went into exile, will go with them into exile. So that's the intent of the vision. What's the intent of the vision in John? To show that the Lord who sits on the throne is sovereign over all of creation. It's a different intention on the vision. Therefore, you're going to see some different variations. Why? Because this is not to be taken as a literal realization. I don't know that there's anybody in heaven, or there's a being in heaven that's got eyes underneath its wings. Yes. That's right. And that's the way God does things. Now, let me just say this to you all. When you are all facing something, a trauma, a trial that you can't go through, Jesus will reveal himself, and he will do so in a way that is conducive to what you are going through. Because he's multifaceted. He's the answer to every question that you have and every circumstance that you face. And so he shows, you, shows himself in those situations to you. And the visions that we see throughout Scripture where somebody was ushered into the throne room of heaven, they are shown a vision, a depiction of God in a character that is pertinent to the situation that the person who's being shown is in. Does that make sense? And in this instance, John is seeing what he's seeing so that we all can walk away from this going, God's in complete control. God's in complete control. 
Let the nations rage. What can man do against me? That's the point, okay? You look perplexed. Did I go too fast for you? Okay. All right, because I'm flying through this stuff. The point is, is that God, that, that these, you're not supposed to see the vision of John as an actual depiction. Are there 24 old men sitting around the throne in other thrones? And the throne is surrounded by these four funky looking beings. Well, the, 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 the key to Ezekiel's vision is the wheels within the wheels, okay? The key to the vision in John is the throne. The throne is central. There's no wheels in a wheel in John's vision. No. Yeah. The, it's just to show that there are variations because everybody will see, each one of these guys saw something different. So this idea that we have to understand these as being literal depictions is a falsity. It's not true. Is there attendance in heaven in the real, attending before the throne? The answer to that is yes. Does one have an ox face and another an eagle's face and another a face of a man? I, I don't know. Probably not. But this is a picture of something that is ineffable. We cannot describe it. So God shows it to us in terms that we can say, oh, I get that. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, that's a good way of looking at it. Another good way of looking at it is the Gospels, synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them saw exactly the same thing, heard the exact same words. But if you read their accounts, they're in different chronolo chronological orders. John, uh, Luke will add stuff that Matthew doesn't. Matthew adds stuff that Luke doesn't. And John just whistles through everything. I mean, Mark. Mark just, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. Okay? Are any of them wrong? No. So, same thing with what's going on here, okay? Once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne. Key word, throne. The word throne is used more in the next two chapters than it is any throughout the entire book of Revelation. Out of the 35 times the word throne is used, I think it's 35. Out of the 35 times the word throne is used, I think it's 26 times it's used in these two chapters. Okay? So, this is the central figure central component of the visions and what what does the throne represent rule authority sovereignty power so the throne is central to to our comfort through these trying times god is sovereignly in control okay um now at once i was in the spirit and then before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, I'm just going to throw this out there because this scripture is used by those who believe in a rapture and, um, and a dispensational thought. This is a, this is a scripture that's used to demonstrate that the rapture is true. At once I was in the spirit and, 
and uh, uh, I was in the throne room of God. What they do is they use John as being a representation of the church. And they do it like this. John represents all Christians. The trumpet voice is the trumpet to be heard in the perusia as per 1 Thessalonians 4. So I heard a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. They equate that with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The great tribulation, that which is depicted in the following chapters, has nothing to do with the church because the church is now gone. But is the time of Jacob's trouble that is uh, written of in Jeremiah 30. Uh, it concerns then ethnic Israel only with whom God is to revive his dealings. Um, they use these two uh, supports. The word church is used 20 times in chapters 1 through 3, but not once after until 2217. So they see it as a parenthetical event. They see that the church is mentioned up to chapter 3. John goes to heaven, so does the church. The rest of it is for ethnic, ethnic Israel. And then when Jesus comes back, the church is with him. And that's how they explain the idea of a rapture and the tribulation be, the, the tribulation of the chap, chapter 6 through 19 as being the seven-year great tribulation. So when we get to it, they also identify the 24 elders uh, as the church, which is true. But they go back to the other visions and they say because the church wasn't depicted in the other visions and is here depicted by John, the church has been raptured and is now in its glorified state around the throne. That's how they do that, okay? That's not how I do it. Um, we'll get to that. But that's, you'll, you'll hear if you talk to somebody who's into the rapture and dispensationalism, they will point to Revelation 4, 1, 1 and 2 as a support, a support scripture. At once I was in the spirit. Now, a lot of commentators will talk about this as being a state of ecstasy. Trance-like. Let me ask you guys a question. How many of you have seen a vision or seen a picture in your mind about that you know was from God? Did you go into a trance? Did you lose touch with reality around you? Not usually. Let me ask you a question. When Stephen, was, when Stephen looked into the very throne room of heaven at his stoning, did he go into a trance? No. So this idea that being in the spirit necessitates or necessarily connotates some kind of ecstatic, bizarre, trans, whatever experience is not necessarily true. Because the spirit can speak to you while you're driving a car. But you're very aware of what's going on around you. So don't be, I don't like that idea. I don't like this metaphysical concept that if the spirit moves, you've got to somehow detach your person, your spirit from your person, and things go on that your body doesn't really know about, and then all of a sudden you kind of like have this out-of-body experience. Yeah, it's very new age. Yes, Andy. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so what he's saying is, is that because the Spirit came on me, because it, it just happened almost in a natural way, I don't know if, if I was like 
caught up in the Spirit or if I was still in a space here. Remember, John, Paul was. Now, this was, I believe, an out-of-body experience, and I'm not disqualifying that. I'm just saying that I don't like the statement that tends to be, especially among evangelicals, that anything that has to do with the Spirit it immediately connotates some kind of weird emotional or subjective experience. Because Paul s simply says, I don't know if I was in or out of a particular type of reference. I just know I saw something. Okay? I can say to you, I actually saw my deliverance from drugs. I had a guy show up at my college and pray for me. He said, the Lord sent me. I knew this guy. I'd met him one time. Told him where I was going to college. Had coffee with him. Spoke with him a little bit. Showed up at my college a, a couple of days later at my dorm room and said, I'm, supposed to, I'm here to pray for you. I was like, uh, okay. So he came in, he sat me in a chair. I was completely cognizant with whatever. And every time I closed my eyes, I saw this vibrant picture. And it scared me. And I opened my eyes and I said, and he goes, what are you seeing? Because God's going to show you great things. So I closed my eyes and I watched. And I was sitting in a chair with chains all over me, gray. And the, the hand of the Lord came down and it, was, and it was bleeding. And it took my chains and it lifted them up. And wherever the blood touched, they fell off of me. And then he touched me on the forehead, and my body became color, colored, went from gray to color. And from that point on, I was delivered from drugs. I just walked away from them. But I knew exactly what he was praying. I knew exactly what was going on in the room, but I was in the spirit. Okay? So I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but I really, it really bothers me that people say, oh, John was in this ecstatic state where he was unaware of what was going on. I don't know that to be true. I think it lends itself to this real subjective concept. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that right now we need to, to, to be in that space. I think we need to be very aware of what's going on around us, but yet stay within the spirit, especially in today's world. So that's why I make a big deal out of it, okay? Any questions on that? Right, yeah. So he, he had to be aware. There had to be some kind of cognizance. It wasn't like he was just yanked out of his body. This kind of this hull was sitting on the Patmos like in a Zen state. And John was taken in the spirit around in, in heaven and shown like, oh, let's see what's behind this door. And let's see what's behind this door. It wasn't like that. I believe that John was just like me sitting in the college room. He was there and all of a sudden, whoa. What am I seeing here? Okay, you guys have heard voices. I've heard audible voices from God. Heard audible voices. I've heard audible voices from the enemy. Yep. So, it's trippy. So, anyway, those things happen and you don't have to be in some Zen-like state. Um... However, I prefer the explanation that John was in the Spirit simply because the Spirit is the mediator of all prophetic revelation and our understanding of all spiritual things, according to 1 Corinthians 2. John was caught up in the Spirit because it is the Spirit that leads us into all truth. John was in the Spirit because it is the Spirit that is... The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of prophecy. Okay? So, this is a necessity. I was in the spirit. Oh, so you were seeing stuff, 
in a prophetic way because Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. Okay? Uh, there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Now this is key. Throne. Again, throne. Someone sitting on it. No attempt is made to describe the being sitting on the throne because in order to do that, John would have had to violate Exodus. Do not make any graven image. Nothing that represents me. God cannot be described. He is spirit. So for John to say it was like, I don't know, I think John just avoided, I'm just going to back up and say this. I think John avoided saying what he saw on the throne because that was something that was hidden from him. And he was hidden in unapproachable light. Okay, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The throne of God is the very center of all things. It represents God's absolute rule, sovereignty, power, and authority. Additionally, in keeping with the symbolic structure of the vision, the throne should be considered as depicting an attribute of the eternal God, that God is enthroned in his sovereignty, power, and authority. Let me ask you this. The psalm says that he's enthroned in the praises of his people, right? Does it not? So does Jesus sit on a throne that's made up of musical notes? See, that my point is, is that this is, this is a depiction of something. This is a depiction. This is an attribute of God. It is the focal point of chapter 4 and continues to be so, th uh, continues to be th so throughout 1617 where it is the source of the pronouncement of judgment. It is the seat of all rule and power. It is the point of reference to which all of Revelation's scenes and actions are located. And even the incarnate Son of God, the focus of the next chapter, stands in relation to the throne. Okay? It's an important key. And he receives the scroll from the one who sits on the throne. Okay? As I said, the divine... Th I, I, I was wrong in my, my count. Let me just clarify. The divine throne is mentioned 17 times in these two chapters with the purpose of being... Uh, being to emphasize the sovereignty of God over human history. It is interesting to note that in, in Revelation, the word throne is used 47 times uh, out, of the 62 out of the 62 times it is mentioned in the New Testament. All the heavenly beings find their significance and their placement around the throne, and earth's inhabitants are judged on the basis of their attitude uh, toward God's claim to rule over them and his throne. Is he Lord? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. But it's what that means when you say that. Is he sovereign over your life? Does he oversee everything about your life? Those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. Who sits on the throne? Do we co-chair our life? Most of us do. Okay. Since all of the judgments of chapter 6 through 16 issue from the throne, the image demonstrates that no matter how rampant evil seems to run, it is the hand of God that superintends everything. Scroll down here. This is of special significance to those facing persecution, suffering, and the temptation to compromise. All right, verse 3. And the one who sat there, now we're going to get into some of the depictions and some of the specifics. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. What are the two colors? Red and green. Okay. 
a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. So what you have is John is seeing a picture, and we'll start to draw it here. So we have uh, a chair, <laughs> right? Okay. There is a being that's sitting on it, but it is it radiates. It radiates. It's it's in unapproachable light, and the light looks like. Jasper and Ruby, okay, red and green. Now, over the throne is what? A rainbow. What color is the rainbow? Not seven hues. It's green, all right? So, we'll get to all of this in a minute, but this is what John is seeing so far. The one who sat there. What John describes here is not God himself, for God cannot be described. Instead, John describes his effulgence, his radiance. As G.B. Caird states, John is allowed to look upon the eternal light through the mirror of the worshiping hosts of heaven. And no man can see God and live. So he's seeing a depiction through the light, his effulgence. It's almost like what Moses saw on the mount. Lord, let me see your glory. All right, I'll cover your hand and you can see my effulgence as I pass by. This is what John is witnessing, okay? This then is a vision of the triune God with the throne being only a symbol of his supreme authority and power and sovereignty. Often it is suggested that the three stones, Jasper, Ruby, which is Sardis, um, and Emerald, um, are, are, are actually significant in many different ways and and they they kind of are but i don't want to get so bogged down in the details um that we miss the idea the idea is the unapproachable radiance of the glory of god uh these collectively represents god's sovereignty majesty and glory as seen especially in chapter 21 a particular significance is the mention of jasper the only stone mentioned later in revelation in explicit connection with the glory of God. It is also at the head of the list of the 12 foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. It should be noted, however, that the word used here for jasper is ambiguous, being used also to identify a gleaming white stone that make many commentators suggest is in actual fact a diamond. So the idea of this jasper here um, is a debatable topic. Is it green? Or is it white? I prefer the latter. Yeah. Yes. And that's what the, the commentators are saying. But in biblical Old Testament, it was specifically used for a white gleaming stone. Which many believe now is, is, is the radiance of a diamond. And white to me seems more significant for him who sits on the throne unapproachable radiance and blind purity blinding purity yeah could be that's a that's also a debatable topic some people say it, it represents god's judgment um some say it represents uh sacrifice the sacrifice or, or redemption um so again this, these are topics that john wasn't specifically given 
He is trying to describe something that cannot be described. And so what he's saying, and especially if you go back to the Old Testament, and I saw as it were one like the Son of Man. And I saw as it were something like a glassy sea. And I saw as it were something like four creatures. Okay, so it's not I saw four creatures. It's I saw something that looked like this. I'm going to try and put some, something that I saw that has no description in language that you can that you can understand. Okay, um, according oh, uh, probably the description here, but crystal clear. Um, the stones also intensi- intensify the unapproachable brightness and glory surrounding God Himself. I don't know necessarily, I'll just say this. I've come to a place where I don't know that John actually saw stones. I think what John saw was a radiance that he could only liken to precious stones. So I don't personally get really hung up. I'm just conveying to you what you will read in some commentaries and what you'll find. Because the idea of the class is to give you an overview of what, what this might look like. And some people like to, to deal with the specifics. I don't know that John actually saw stones. What he said was, um, one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. It's not that, and I saw stones all around this being. So what he's trying to show, demonstrate is the radiance of God, and that's where I've come to. The rainbow of God. Okay, why is this significant? Why is the rainbow that's over the head of God significant? This Remember, everything goes back, I said once before and I'll say it again, you, I could preach the entire scripture, everything that there is to preach in the Bible by going through Revelation. It, has back, it goes back to Noah, the Noahic covenant. Okay? There's a direct tie back to the covenant, the rainbow in the sky that God established. Um... Anyway, there are seven colors or hues in the spectrum of a rainbow, uh, how, and one of them is green. However, John saw an entire rainbow as a shade of green. This is no uh, prismatic bow in the sky. It is like an emerald, a statement that teases the imagination out of all thought, said J.B. Carrick. All right. This speaks of glory, mercy, uh, God's mercy as in the days of Noah, and suggests that even as God's judgment unfolds, now this is the, pro- this is the point, so the, the rainbow signified that God would never again destroy the world by water, which is, which, which is a, 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 a hope to us, right? Now if, if you understand what God is saying, He will never destroy the world again by the chaos of the sea. He will never allow that to happen instead what God does is now he initiates the judgment going forward but this is significant it has back to do it has a backward looking and it has also a forward looking there is a promise made here that is fulfilled here to us okay more importantly and of uh, where to go where to go where to go and of greater significance to the immediate theme, the rainbow has to do with God's glory, since Ezekiel 1.28 equates the rainbow with the appearance of the surrounding radiance 
the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. So again, the jasper, the ruby, and the rainbow all combine to depict the glory of the one who sat on the throne. Okay? Another truth that could be expressed by the symbol is that, uh, is that for those who belong to God, the judgment of God executed by means of the flood is over. They have been saved through water. So some commentators suggest that. All right. The stones with the rainbow, not only foresh- uh, uh, they foreshadow new creation, um, but they, uh, they do foreshadow new creation and the new creation, the actuality of the new creation in heaven already. Just like the 24 el- elders represent something that is not yet com- uh, consummated, but has a picture or a beginning already in the throne room. Because it is said, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Does it not say that of us? Right? Are you, in fact, now? Has that promise been consummated? The answer to that is no, but in a way, yes. So this is the interesting thing about the already but not yet in, Christ, in God. And we see that with the 24 elders, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, no, we won't. Um, the rainbow was the first, okay, as stated, the precious stones are part of the new creation coming down out of heaven in the new Jerusalem, and the rainbow was the first revelatory sign of the new creation significantly given after the flood. So what was the outcome of the flood? What, was the, the, what, what did the flood produce out of? What was, what was brought out of the flood? A new beginning. God destroyed all that was old and started over, right? So it's a depiction of new creation. So the throne above the the rainbow that John sees is a depiction of the new creation that already is in the heavenly realms but is yet to be consummated in the earth, okay? So it's a hard concept to get around, but again... We're talking about a being that cannot even be described. So there are things that he, uh, that, that, that goes back again to the idea of the, the stars um, and the churches. The lampstands are the earthly expression of what is in the hand of Jesus, the seven stars. All right. So the seven stars represent the fullness of the church consummated. The seven lampstands represent the church on the earth. Okay, so the angels of the church must represent a heavenly depiction of what is true on the earth. They can't be angels because if they are, then the angels are sinning in heaven. Because Jesus said, I have this against you, that you entertain the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, was he going to say that to an angel? No, because all the angels that have failed God were cast down with Lucifer, right? So these are holy beings. So there is a there is a heavenly expression. There is a heavenly consummated expression of what exists on the earth. Stars in God's hand, the hand of of, of Jesus, the lamp stands on the earth, and that's what we're seeing here. Okay, the rainbow represents the new creation that is depicted already in heaven, but has yet to be consummated on the earth. 
All right. We'll get into the 24 el elders and uh, those kind of things. Let me, anybody have any questions? Yes, no, maybe? There's a lot here, but I want us to walk away with this notion here today, or, or this, this truth, that God is sovereign. God is in control of whatever circumstance and whatever is, is, is facing you individually, corporately as a body, and globally as the church of Christ on the earth. He is in control, he oversees, he will bring about, he is, will assure the preservation and the perseverance of those who are in his, the, that are his own. Remember the prayer that John prayed, in, uh, that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, where he said, all those you've given into my hand, none can take, none can remove. That's you and I, and we cannot be removed or taken out of the Lord's hand. So that's an important thing. The other thing is, is that God in his throne is glorious and unapproachable. The light of who he is is blinding. He is radiant beyond description, but because of Jesus, the door is open. And we can come boldly, as the writer of Hebrews says, before the throne of grace. So today, when you worship, remember that you worship an otherwise uh, unapproachable God, but because of Jesus, you have access and can join with the 24 elders and the four, the four living creatures today as they unceasingly render praise to God. We can join with that eternal chorus, all right? Okay, let's keep that in our hearts and in our minds today as we go in. Father, we're grateful. We understand that trying to describe something that's indescribable can sometimes be confusing and difficult to get our arms around, but you've given something to John in order to show us and to, and to give us security and assurance that this inapproachable God, who is now approachable because of Christ Jesus, is in control, sovereign, overseeing, all-powerful, and that all things are moving toward the fulfillment of His purposes. So let us join with the chorus in heaven this morning and sing the praises of him who is worthy of all praise. In Jesus' name, amen.